And welcome to Texting Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes lost time and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading... There is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash Taxing Matters. Listeners who have been following Taxing Matters for a while will remember back in the heady days of June and July 2020, we talked about the newly emerging risk of furlough fraud. While that risk has had time to bed in and in turn into an estimated 5-10% of all furlough claims, or approximately £3.5 billion, falsely or incorrectly claimed. And it's high time that we turn that issue back under the microscope. Here to help us is David Francis. David is a partner at Grant Thornton's Birmingham office, where he leads Grant Thornton's Midlands Tax Disputes and Investigations team. He was an inspector of taxes for eight years, so as a poacher turned gamekeeper, or possibly a gamekeeper turned poacher. David assists a wide range of clients, from sole traders to large multinational companies, to manage their interactions with HMRC. David is also an avid former sport player of all kinds and has, since reluctantly hanging up his own competitive boots, become a coach and referee and is awaiting the announcement that teams can reform with such bated breath that I'm slightly surprised he hasn't passed out from oxygen deprivation. David, welcome to Taxing Matters. Hi Alice, thank you very much for having me. David, can you please give us a quick refresher as to what furlough is and how it works? Yeah, sure. It's it's a scheme devised by the government to enable employers to retain their staff. Um, obviously, during the global pandemic, there were challenges around employing people and keeping people on the records. So it's a mechanism on which uh, the employers are able to put them on leave um, and pay them and are able then to reclaim an amount from HMRC that would or would top their wages up effectively to a number. And that depending on, on the different variants of the scheme. There have been three different variants of the coronavirus job retention scheme or the furlough scheme. Um, the first one that was in operation between March 2020 and June 2020, the end of June. The second variant, which then brought in the concept of a flexible furlough, whereby individuals could go on a period of furlough, but also then bring them back whenever businesses might need them. Um, and that all took place between the 1st of July 2020 and the 31st of October 2020. And then more latterly, CGRS 3, uh, which has been in operations from the 1st of November and is likely to end at the 30th of April 2021. But that may change and that might be extended as part of um, any budget announcement. Effectively, it's a government scheme to support businesses, to retain staff, but at the same time, not at the full cost. So you talked about furlough three and that's where we're up to at the moment. How is that different from the first furlough scheme that was introduced? Sure, it's quite complex in terms of when you look at it over the period of the last 12, 13 months. There's been periods of times when employers are able to claim 80% of the normal salary of an individual um, and then include the pay as you earn the mix from the government, but then also the, employer, the, the pension contributions. Um, that then moved on to CJRS2, which came in on the 1st of July, where there's very much a tapered support over a period of time where they thought 
that the restrictions might start easing and, and as the wider um, roadmap out of the global pandemic was put in place, the government then thought that the support would be reducing over that period of time. So from the 1st of July 2020, it was very much like CJRS1 in that you could have the 80% plus the employers, um, next plus the pension contributions. Then in August of 2020, that then reduced to just 80% of the salary. Then in September was tapered down to 70 and then October was tapered down to 60%. But then as the number of cases started to increase and actually as we're currently sat down in the uh, lockdown process at the moment, the government uh, recognised that there's further needs of support. So they introduced CJRS3 which effectively extended that and was broadly based around CJRS1 which enabled businesses to be able to claim 80% the salary of an individual. So we've heard a lot of about amounts lost by fraud or error of the furlough scheme. How has that come about? I think the thing HMRC probably needs to be recognised for in terms of the work that they've done is the speed in which they got the scheme up and running. It was brought in at breakneck speed. The Chancellor announced this new scheme that would be available and that HMRC would be the one that would be running it through an online portal. So they needed to get up to speed with the process, with the idea of furlough. They needed to be in a situation where they had an online portal that would be able to work, which given past HMRC and past government issues around the use of information technology in itself was a, was a magnificent feat for them to be able to bring something quickly. And then they had to have the guidance and the directions to be brought in sometimes after the initial first claims were being made. So all of that created a significant period of uncertainty. It meant the clients were making claims during that period when they didn't necessarily know that the amounts that they could count Um, They didn't know the mechanism for how that would work. And crucially, they didn't necessarily know what the impact of making a claim and not having that claim accepted or being challenged later down the line. They didn't know then what the potential position might be. So all of that complexity, all of that speed in which the process and the mechanism was designed created a situation there was going to be some errors. And I think HMRC recognised there will be errors in claims that were made, certainly earlier on in the piece in CJRS1, but equally CJRS2 and CJRS3 all have their complexities. So that's where mistakes happen. But beyond the mistakes, um, there, there is also um, a significant degree, degree of fraudulent activity. With any government scheme or government initiative that came out of that period of time, there are a certain pocket of the population that have sought to bend and break the rules. And that can really extend from a number of different ways, from organised crime, really looking at seeing what they can do. And we see instances where minute details of companies were changed at company's house that would then enable these individuals to act on their behalf to be able to make claims to HMRC and can see that some fraudulent amounts have been claimed in that period. You have then kind of almost beyond that first level of the change, you have to then determine whether or not your business was affected by the global pandemic. Now, this has created quite a number of questions along the way from businesses around what does affected mean? How does that actually apply? Are they looking at that particular period of when you're making the claim? Are they looking at the period in terms of looking at the totality of when businesses have been in that global pandemic? And and therefore, what does that affected mean? 
we tried to get HMRC to be more specific and provide guidance that was more, I suppose, targeted as to what that means, because I think that will um, certainly solve any future disputes that might be in play. But that word affected is quite interesting. We've got some organisations at the moment who might be looking at um, issuing dividends, but if they've claimed money under the fellow scheme, how does that then mean that they've been affected? Who's sharing the pain? And HMRC's view on that very much is everybody needs to share their pain. That would be shareholders, that would be people within an organisation, and that would be HMRC in terms of making those payments. So that's the very first step in terms of that process. What does affected mean? How does that look like? And can organisations demonstrate that they have been affected by the global pandemic? The next level down really is then looking around individuals and what those individuals have done in terms of whilst they've been on furlough. One of the key principles of being on furlough is that the employees should not be working at all for employers. We know that that's happened and there are a number of different statistics ranging from significantly high numbers through to, to small numbers of instances where either the employee has decided to work or the employer is asking the employee to work. And on either, either sides of those, if HMRC were to find out whether these employees were working, they have the opportunity then to look to recover the amounts claimed under CJRS. So there's a wide spectrum of instances where furlough fraud could have happened or where errors could be made in claims, um, but HMRC are going to be really active in this space in the, in the next 12, 18, 24 months and beyond. So what investigative tools do HMRC have at their disposal when they're looking into these furlough fraud allegations? They have wide-ranging powers, Alice, so they have a number of different information powers which they can compel individual companies and businesses to provide them information in relation to obtaining information which will support them. One of the things that they often will do is look at email traffic. So they'll understand as to whether or not employers and employees have communicated by email. And if they have been, does that constitute working? And is that services? There is a recognition that some employees will still need to touch base in certain industries and sectors. But that goes beyond touching base and actually then draws down into doing work. They'll use that as evidence to be able to say that uh, the amounts were fraudulently claimed. I was approached by a neighbour of mine at the start of the CGRS process, whereby he had been put on furlough by his employer, but his employer asked him to set up email addresses that were non-business specific, um, with the intention that he was to still continue to work um, during that period. Clearly, the individual impacted was aware at the time um, and made use of the whistleblowing hotline that was available to him and was able to guide him through the process in terms of how to use that. But it's just another example of the way that HMRC get information. Um, and certainly through that whistleblowing hotline, they've had a number of instances where businesses have effectively been identified as making their employees work. just talk then about your neighbour. So if HMRC is making this investigation and say that your neighbour's business were to come to you, what kinds of information would you be telling your neighbour's business to collect? How would they respond to these allegations that have been made by way of a whistleblowing complaint? 
I think one of the biggest challenges in making claims in the first instance is the collation of information. Lots of organisations have different systems. It might be as part of payroll, it might be as part of the organisation, it might be on SAP, it might be a different broad spectrum of attaining that. So getting all of that in one place to be able to respond to HMRC is probably crucial and paramount in terms of responding. At Grand Thornton, we've developed a online data analytical tool in conjunction with our forensic investigation services team, where we are able to bring all of that information together from numerous different systems and build in some of the tests that HMRC would expect. So therefore, the email traffic, the review of telephone records, and just anything that you would expect HMRC to consider. Things like, for example, docking in and out. Clearly, if employees have been docking in during a period where they're supposed to have been um, on furlough, that will set the hairs running with HMRC. And so having that data analytical tool, we can bring it all together with a view that actually when um, HMRC start asking their questions and the type of questions that they do ask is very formulaic at the very outset of that inquiry notice period. You're able to respond in such a way, businesses would be able to respond in such a way that they could say, this is the areas that we've covered. This is the information that we've pulled together. These are some of the areas actually where we think we might have an issue. These are the areas that we feel we're quite comfortable in relation to the nature of the scheme itself. So it's being able to draw all of that information together using that data analytical tool, which reduced the number of person hours required to sift through vast amount of data. So it just speeds up the process, but also gives those organisation and businesses a heads up as to what their picture looks like. How does that look? And then being able to respond to HMRC at that stage. So you mentioned also the whistleblowing and your neighbour being walked through that process. Where else has HMRC gotten their information from in order to start these investigations? In the very, very first basic stage for them will be what does their real-time information say? So that's the HMRC system really checking what's going through the CJRS claim portal versus their own information. So that's stage one. Then beyond that, they do have a number of discussions with other government agencies, and they do that through various different agreements that they've got there. So they are able to pull information elsewhere. So it might be in a particular sector. There might be a number of contracts that are being entered into where they need to be able to support any government agencies. And they use that by um, HMRC system called the Connect system which is effectively like a spider um, and looks across the internet and is able to pull all of that information in together in relation to a specific customer, as they like to call um, taxpayers, um, with a view then to bringing out a data sheet. So it really is targeted as the individual business, but then using that tool that they've got available and in conjunction with talking to other government agencies, they were able then to build up a picture of that organisation and then use that as part of their risk analysis as to whether or not they will look to provide challenge to the claims that have been made. So what is HMRC's response to the potential for fraud and error to have clicked in? I think the overriding piece from HMRC is one of support. They recognise that the claims process, CJRS was brought in at breakneck speed, they recognised it was full of complexity and they recognised that it was there to support the government's aim to support the economy. So that was, I suppose, the intention to begin with was very much in it comes, let's help support businesses, let's help them to get it right, provide as much as we can in terms of certainty up front, but the clear aim was to support businesses. Throughout all of that, they've always said that they will target those that sought to bend and break the rules 
um, and they will do that by providing additional funding to particular parts within HMRC, particularly the Fraud Investigation Service, with the resources it would need to be required to be able to then check some of those claims. Early on in the stage, they did identify an individual that had been arrested as part of the furlough fraud charges when that was up in my part of the world in the West Midlands. But we are aware, for example, that there are some payroll providers that have also been brought into the scope of furlough fraud on the basis that they've been submitting claims on behalf of their members or behalf of those that have been using them as a payroll provider. But the information on which they're relying on to make those claims might not necessarily have been brought into the right level of due diligence. And that's where HMRC's additional weaponry will be brought in. So this is where they'll consider whether or not they can use the failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion um, under the Criminal Finances Act. But it's very much... I suppose, supplementary to that, the HMRC's Fraud Investigation Services focusing in on those that have sought to really bend and break the rules. Then the next level down beyond that will be those where they have suspicions that that there's been fraud and they'll use HMRC's Code of Practice 9 as a way of bringing in more individual businesses and into that process. So they'll identify which business it might be and then consider which individuals within that organisation they they would seek to, um, to bring under the Code of Practice 9 piece. Once to receive that code of practice nine, I suppose the beautiful way HMRC have designed it is it would then seek to bring in any other elements. And there are a number of other government schemes that have been unveiled as part of the support around the global pandemic. A couple of those ones is in relation to the self-employed, um, but also in relation to the eat out to help out scheme. And on both of those elements, HMRC have been aware of businesses that they were previously not aware of. So the fact that organisations out there have not notified HMRC of any chargeability previously, but then under the global pandemic sought to bring information, I can imagine that if they don't take those organisations via a criminal prosecution route, then they will certainly bring that in under Code of Practice 9 with a view to seeing what else there was there. Almost to shake the tree, if you like, in terms of let's see what information we we can get out there. The information upon which they rely on there in terms of whistleblowers depends which area you listen. But uh, one of the last times I had a conversation with some of the senior people within HMRC, there was around about 20,000 whistleblowers that related to these government schemes. And that's an awful lot of information that HMRC needs to sift through, but also some of those information they provided were more, as we say, specific in relation to the schemes. So if we take the eat out to help out, a nice anecdote was that a number of people were calling up to say that their local restaurant were not offering the local delicacy that they expected to see on there. And I don't think that's necessarily what the aim of the whistleblowing hotline process was, but it is very much then brought in around to try and focus and target on those that sought to bend and break those rules. And they will be making use of that. As part of the budget announcements, HMRC have announced that they'll be having a fraud task force around the government schemes given £100 million to be able to support that fraud investigation services team providing what over a thousand members of staff to be able to kind of sift through all of that information and really target those individuals and organisations that have done that. So that's at the sort of the fraudulent level. Then as we move into the more mistaken error territory, um, it, a lot will depend on where your organisation sits within HMRC structure in the large business directorate within HMRC. They look after the top 2,000 organisations in the UK, tend to be the large groups, the multinationals. And within that 2,000 organisations, there was approximately 1,000 that made furlough claims. 
HMRC's large business organisation has written to all of those businesses with a view of just making sure that they've considered their claim, they've checked their claim and they're happy with that claim. The next phase beyond that was almost a targeted intervention letter, which was to determine which of those 1,000 they needed to do further work on and almost gave them a We've looked at each claim. It doesn't match the information that we hold. Are you sure you're comfortable that the claim is correct? Now that we have gone into that third stage, which is a more one-to-one approach, HMRC will target those organisations in the large business that haven't been playing ball, that perhaps have made claims that don't then kind of fit back to the information that they hold within their systems. So that's within large business and that one-to-one will continue on. The other thing for large businesses that, that really they need to consider and should be looking at as a wider piece is their roles within the senior accounting officer regime. That regime is designed for those organisations that have turnover over £200 million. They need to self-report to HMRC to say that their tax accounting arrangements were appropriate for that year. CJRS will form part of that process. So they will want to see that organisations and the senior accounting officer within those organisations have been involved in the decision making around CJRS, can demonstrate that they've considered whether that organisation was affected by the global pandemic and coronavirus in more detail, and therefore have gone through the process of talking to the board and having the relevant documentation in place should HMRC challenge. Added into that, the annual business risk review, i.e. the way that HMRC will look at organisations in large business and determine where they need to allocate their resource, they will consider how the claims have been made, what documentation they have, and if at the end of that they just feel that the controls they have around that process haven't been robust, then the focus HMRC will have on that business will increase over the next few years. So it's very much real time at the moment with that large business population, but HMRC will be considering um, what they can do in terms of that. As we move into the mid-sized business, which tends to be everybody else that's of some size that might be over £10 million plus turnover, mid-sized businesses are being dealt with by a central team who are very much risk-based. Um, so they similarly had a, one, a one-to-many approach, i.e. they sent out a number of um, letters. Um, at one stage, they sent out 20,000 letters to employers, um, just asking them to check whether the information they hold and they've put through their claim was equivalent to the information that HMRC previously held prior to that process. Given the nature of the way that they've brought this around, it is very much, I suppose, low-hanging fruit, Alice. This is where they are looking at does the pay reference periods match up to the pay reference periods they previously hold? It's more of a data, I suppose, driven approach. So those 27,000 organisations had the opportunity to reassess, consider whether or not they had made the right claims at the time. And if they hadn't, they had within 90 days at that time, the letter being issued to respond to HMRC and put their hands up and say, actually, we've overclaimed. And if we've overclaimed, this is how much we've done. So that's the 27,000. They followed that up with a further round of correspondence with about 12,000 letters that went out to organisations that might not have responded on the first round, um, that they might have further information from the hotline. And so they're using that information with a view of really targeting where they look and on which particular sectors they want to focus on. Again, that has been in gone, that process, and we're now into that one-to-one intervention process. And to give an idea of scale, at the moment, they're looking at 10,000 
inquiries. And that 10,000 goes slightly beyond the coronavirus job retention scheme and CJRS. It does bring in the SAYS and also the ETAL to help out schemes. But that gives you the set the scale, I suppose, of HMRC's activities in this area. And they will be very much a formulaic letter that sends out in, in that process. That mid-sized business team have got 500 employees working in terms of looking at this. And so they will very much focus on the information that they hold, the information they've got from those different sources, and apply that to the claims that be made. And so those organisations that haven't been in and checked whether or not the claims were right in the first time really should be thinking about doing that before responding to HMRC. So what will businesses need to be thinking about in the event that HMRC do come knocking in that sort of more targeted one-to-one style of inquiry? I think, Alice, the key really is prevention is better. Um, So if you've got the process and you sat down and you're concerned about any nature of the claims that you've been made, the best thing you can do is undertake a self-review and self-report that to HMRC before they come knocking. That will give you the added benefit of being able to approach HMRC for them to be able to understand that you've done everything that they would expect an organisation to do and then also get onto the position where you're much likely to be able to reduce any potential impact of repaying those amounts. But if you're sat there at the moment where HMRC have issued the letter and are in a process of beginning to look for information, I think step number one is just to remain calm. HMRC's information is only as good, I suppose, as the information they receive. I mean, I think that might sound relatively obvious, but it always never necessarily mean that there is an issue in the claim that you've been made. So just take a step back, remain calm and and if appropriate, speak to an advisor. The key really is that initial strategy from HMRC is quite formulaic. The information and documents that they request is very standard and ask for a, a detailed information request. Our advice, again, is always to go in and to, to have a conversation with HMRC point of contact in the first stage to say that actually our clients are going to go through and undertake a self-review before responding and we'll notify HMRC of what those issues that might come out the back end of it. If those issues are there, we can set those into a disclosure and we can provide HMRC with the way that we've approached it and some of the areas and some of the issues that have been identified. The benefit of that is you're taking a bit of control away from HMRC in terms of how they operate. You are then ultimately providing the HMRC with a summary of the work that they would expect to be done and they can focus ultimately their resources on those that are really intent on not being um, in, in a situation of not playing ball with HMRC. If you're to make a disclosure, it's key really to put the facts and the context behind the process so that you're explaining to HMRC how you've approached approached it, what you have done, how you identified those errors, why those errors arose. And clearly, organisations have been focused around business continuation uh, as key. You know, it's been a, it's a, a fairly unprecedented time in the last 12 months and mistakes could quite easily have happened. And it's being open and honest about those mistakes and, and ultimately what you plan to do to rectify it. And then the ability to kind of make a payment on account at the point you make the disclosure, that all sets up the right kind of framework in terms of which to speak to HMRC about. And you are in a, I suppose, in a much better position than organisations that decide actually, no, we'll just see what HMRC you can find and 
then we're into a different penalty regime and we're very much into them using all of the powers that they have available to them. So it's really a recommendation of undertaking a self-review prior to responding to HMRC, setting any issues that you've identified out, putting those in a disclosure and then providing that information to HMRC in such a way that they have got sufficient information to be able to tick them off the, off the list effectively. One of the key things to remember in mind throughout the process whilst you're dealing with HMRC is the powers that they have available to them. Um, as they are treating any overclaim amount of money that they find as being deliberate and concealed. What that means, I suppose, in general terms is that HMRC have the ability to issue a penalty of up to 100% of any claim that's been made. Um, that's quite a significant, a sizable penalty. And certainly if there's just been errors that have been made, it's key to get the context and the information out to them so that you can put your best case forward to HMRC as the program. The fact that they're treating it as deliberate and concealed and almost a failure to notify, that in itself extends the penalties and, and gives a significant range. They also have the ability to name and shame, i.e. to put organisations' details up in lights on their website to say, this is how much the organisation claimed, this is how much they overclaimed, and these are the reasons why they did it. And that's quite a powerful tool from HMRC in terms of uh, the, the reputational damage that organisations might feel as part of a period whereby HMRC and the government are really trying to help organisations through. You'll have seen a number of organisations actually have repaid the furlough monies in totality, and that is driven mainly by the need from the, uh, the PR side. So it's more than just a tax issue. You've got the tax, you've got the penalties, but you've also got that reputational issues. Ultimately, it takes careful management to be able to get organisations through a challenge by HMRC. So what should businesses take away from HMRC's focus on furlough fraud? It's clear HMRC will go after those that they think have sought to bend or break the rules. So HMRC's focus will be very much into that fraud investigation service within HMRC. They are providing them with the tools and the, the money and the backing for them to be able to go out and knock on the doors that they need to knock on. So in that sector, HMRC will be very active. However, they will also catch organisations that perhaps through their best intentions sought to get it right at the outset. However, if those organisations have not gone back in to check that the claims they've been made are correct, to consider those other areas of elements of where claims might fall down, that might be through employees working, could be employees working without the organisation knowing. Certainly if those employees are commission-based, it might be in their best interest to have kept on working. But the fact that they would have been working during that period would have meant that they would fall outside the grant scheme and the, the ability to make claim for those individuals. So it is a very much a focus around undertaking a self-review. So organisations need to go in, undertake a self-review, ensure that if there are any issues that they disclose them to HMRC, and by doing so and repaying those amount, they are saving themselves from any potential reputational damage. They'll be able to mitigate that penalty position and they'll ultimately be able to be in a position where they know that there won't be any challenge from HMRC further down the line because HMRC will be active and they will be active in this space for the coming years and years to come. So thank you very much, David, for taking us through Furlough Ford and how it's operating now. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. 
Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. A full transcript of this episode, together with our references, can be found on our website, www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. If you like taxing matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening, and talk to you again in two weeks. Thank you.